It's the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, but sometimes some of us need a finger pointing. And complexity pointed me at things like emptiness of inherent existence, which were completely abstract things and have become given me access to direct experience. It's easy to say we are all one, but to experience that and in our world, which only trusts science in many ways, um, here's science telling us, no, that's what the world is. We are both separate and lonely individuals in a big, vast, largely empty universe. And at the same time, we are all exquisite expressions of that universe, undivided, completely seamless. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. Today, I'm in conversation with Neil Thies. And Neil is a professor of pathology at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And he's a researcher and pioneer in adult stem cell plasticity and a researcher on complexity. And today we'll be discussing his brand new book called Notes on Complexity, a scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being. It's a really interesting conversation, and we get into some fun places, including Neil's background in science and religion and consciousness, and his work and presentation at science and non-duality conferences over the years. And so let's get right into it today on The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. All right, so I'm here with Neil Thies. Thank you so much for being on the Sounds of Sand podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, and I know you've presented at several sand conferences in the past, so people, some listeners will be familiar with their work. But would you mind giving a bit of your background and the perspective from which you weave science and spirituality so effortlessly in your writing? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Ever since I was a kid, I had these two things going on. There was a religion, spiritual thing, and a science thing. I was a typical nerdy science kid, lots of time reading the World Book Encyclopedia and hanging out of the library and collecting rocks and going to summer science camp and things like that. But at the same time, I grew up in a... My parents were from Europe, were Jewish. My father was a Holocaust survivor. And I grew up in a community of German Holocaust survivors. So the children in this community were really so prized. We were so prized as the future and hope. And so religion for most of the people I grew up with, some cousins, but just friends of the family, it was a very rich experience. It wasn't something that was felt imposed or overly rigid. And so I had this really joyful Jewish family practice and community practice going on and the science stuff. And I was aware that our society tends to say those things are incompatible, but I just don't, didn't really care. I followed my nose for my interests. And sometimes I was reading about Jewish stuff. In my teen years, I stumbled into Jewish mysticism oddly through the book The Source by James Mishner, which is a novel he would write, a thousand-page novels about a particular site over 10,000 years of history. And this one of a spot, a fictional site, archaeological dig in Israel, in chapter seven or something, in the middle of the book, there was one on the mystical community of Tzfat in northern Israel in the 15th century to 16th century. And suddenly I discovered, suddenly I discovered there was this thing called Jewish mysticism. And there were, in the novel, there was a mystic whose experience of of becoming one with the divine was vividly written about. And that sort of blew my mind because I had been wrestling with issues of being in a family of Holocaust survivors 
for my whole life. How do we have this joyful religious practice? And yet this happened. And it suddenly occurred to me that perhaps through mystical practice, there was some way of achieving the God's eye view of things that from, and I literally said this to a friend of mine, maybe from the God's eye view, things like the Holocaust make sense. And so that's what I started thinking I had to aim for. Meanwhile, I was collecting rocks and going to summer astronomy camp and um, doing stuff like that. Discovered physics, Einstein and relativity, and then quantum physics in seventh grade. 11th grade, I went to Israel for a summer. I used my bar mitzvah money to go to study particle physics at the Weizmann Institute <laughs> for a summer when I was 16. And, and then went off to college, and <clears throat> I wound up being a Judaic studies major, thinking of going to rabbinical school. But I also had a major separate degree in computers, which now I look back, that was my intro to systems science, which complexity is a science of systems. But I also went pre-med for other more peculiar reasons and, and wound up doing that. So all the way through, there's been this I'm doing this and I'm doing this. It's not either or, it's both and. But I never felt any particular interest in people trying to merge the two. So I remember when the Tao of physics came across my radar, I took note of it, but I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't really care. Bumped into Zen in college. A friend gave me The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Philip Kaplow. And that was my intro to Zen practice. And I took note of the enlightenment, quote unquote, or awakening experiences in the book and how they sounded very much like things I had read about in Jewish mystical sources in an academic way. And Jewish mysticism, it's accessible now, but back in the, this is, we're talking in the 70s, for a middle-class, non-Orthodox Jewish, let alone gay kid growing up in New England, it wasn't available. But here, the Zen stuff was, and it struck me as being non-theist enough that I could do it without crossing boundaries of my Jewish practice. That was a more interesting dance over the following decades, how they related or didn't relate, or I tried to force them to relate. But regardless, that's how I started a contemplative practice. It was Mm -hmm. through that book, meditating on my own until my late 20s when I went to Zen Mountain Monastery and started formal Zen practice. I'm now a student of the Village Zendo in, in New York. And still, so here I am becoming a doctor and becoming expert in human biology. I became a pathologist, a diagnostic pathologist. That's my clinical practice. I look at slides all day, particularly the liver, cancer versus not cancer, uh, working with the liver transplant team. And a lot of my scientific research came out of the liver stuff. And that was happening. And then the religion stuff was happening. I was becoming a Zen student. It was in 2001 that a friend of mine in England who was an academic at the University of Westminster and curated art, science, interdisciplinary interactions and collaborations. And he put me together with another friend of his named Jane Prophet, who was an artist. And he got funding to have me travel to England and her and him to travel to New York for Jane and I to simply talk about what we do And he recorded the conversation so that other people could study how a scientist and an artist might speak to each other and learn each other's languages. And so I know we actually have the transcript of when I was talking about my stem cell research. That's what I have exploded at the highest level scientifically with adult stem cell research around 1999-2000. And I was explaining to her about my stem cell research. And she said something about how that reminds her of this thing called complexity theory and how the way I spoke about cells moving around the body and organizing themselves sounded like how ants organize colonies where slime molds can be a thing or not a thing, depending on the temperature. And I said, what's complexity theory? And we were off and running. 
And then working with her, we built up a slightly larger team. That's partly who the dedication of the book is to. It's that group of computational mathematical scientists and us and Peter who curated us. And it was during that time where I suddenly, I had a moment of understanding that complexity theory was pointing at the things I was exploring in my Zen practice. So complexity theory talks about how interacting things at one level of scale give rise to larger structures at another level of scale. So ants organize themselves into colonies. There's no top-down planning. All the food lines and the cemetery and the nursery and the dump for refuse, etc., all of that comes from local interactions between ants and their environment. And, and the whole thing erupts. And human cities are exactly the same way. Jane Jacobs was talking about this in her books before complexity was even gave us a language to, to speak about it. And the stem cell stuff had become so obsessive to me. It was actually uncomfortable for a few years. I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and have to write down ideas I was having. It, it just became this very pressured scientific discovery process. And, but I couldn't stop it. And there was I was becoming aware that when I looked at stem cells on the slides from my patients that first led me to stem cell research, and then for a while I was doing animal research with mice. I didn't particularly like it and I stopped, but for a while I did that. And I was starting to realize that there was no difference between the stem cells in the mice, the stem cells on the human slides, and my own body. That my body is comprised of the cells I'm studying. I am the thing I am studying. And this sort of self-referential aspect started to become very obsessive, mm -hmm. like a Zen koan. A koan is typical Zen practice. A typical one would be, what's the sound of one hand clapping? That's probably the most famous. They're questions that you can't answer with your intellect. There's some deeper mode of experience. Then you're instructed to solve a koan to become the koan. Well, I was becoming the stem cell koan right. for myself. There was a moment where I was trying to cross the street in New York City, and I was going on in my head, stem cells, I'm stem cells, I'm made of cells moving around, cell cells. And the light changed so I could cross the street, and other people stepped off the curb, and I couldn't move because my leg had become oh. a flock of cells. <laughs> and I didn't know how to direct it. So that yeah. was peculiar. <laughs> it was Sounds a moment. Like and then sometime shortly after that, I was... In the Zendo, this was a time I was assigned to be the opener for the Zendo for mm -hmm. Thursday mornings. And back in those days, there were, was a smaller group. Sometimes there wasn't anybody there but me. And I was sitting there by myself, the light coming through the window, and you could see dust motes afloat in the air. And I'm sitting on the cushion and trying to follow my breath, which was my practice at the time. But stem cells, my body cells, I just could, I could not turn it off. And I looked up and saw the dust motes floating in the light. And then I looked across the room at the altar where there was a stick of incense and the smoke rising from the incense. And all of a sudden, I just had this flash. Are you a body or are you cells? Are you the stick or the smoke? the world is particles <laughs> and i realized it's both it's always both and suddenly i realized oh my god that's what the buddhists mean by emptiness of inherent existence i'm this body but there's no body it's just a community of cells but it's not just a community of cells it's a body both are true is it the stick or the smoke both are the incense and, uh, and at that moment, the science came together with mm. the spirituality. And I had never, ever, I was completely disinterested in trying to get them to talk to each other. And suddenly, here they were. And within a short time, it became clear that the principles of complexity not only gave you emptiness of inherent existence, but gave you impermanence and interdependence and yeah. karmic law. <laughs> and then aspects of Jewish mysticism with Luriana Kabbalah, mm. and I was off and running. 
Wow. Quite a story. That's one. That's <laughs> so great. that's the story. Yeah. And that comes through so vividly in your book notes on complexity that you get into the very much the detail of what complexity is and how it emerges and how we experience it at these different scales of existence. But at the same time, you're holding a lot of space for the mystery of surrender of not of holding that space of not understanding quite how these complex systems and there's this sort of magicalness of it. And before yes. we get too much into the details of the topics of your book, which I want to, I want to do, I think some people perhaps would be put off by the word complex because, because in mm -hmm. English language, we often conflate complexity and complicated. You know, well, people right, say things exactly. like, Oh, doing my taxes, it's too complex or it's too complicated, but they're not really the same thing. So could you mm -hmm. differentiate those for the listeners? Yeah, there, there's lots of videos online or shorter books over the years that have been published on complexity where they all say, and I've used the cliche too at one moment or another, complexity is simple or the simplicity of complexity. Complexity theory describes complex things, in particular living things. Complexity is the science of life. And life is complex, but it turns out that how life happens, the rules that govern how life emerges, changes, adapts, comes to an end even, is actually extraordinarily simple. And so there are four basic rules for how, if things obey these four rules, and ants do, so they give rise to colonies. Cells do, so they give rise to bodies. Humans do, so they give rise to cities, cultures, and ecosystems. And it turns out, and just what I've said now, sets up this interesting thing. So cells can give rise to bodies, and bodies can give rise to societies. So com complex systems can be leveled mm -hmm. or layered. And so this led me to the question of, and as I said before, is it a body or is it the cells? You have this question of, are you a thing or a phenomenon arising from smaller things? At this level of scale, you're over there and I'm over here and we look like objects. But at the, at the microscopic level, not only are our bodies actually more like flocks of cells, but our boundaries are not limited by our skin at that level because we're shedding skin cells all the time. A lot of the dust in our homes is actually shed skin. And because our skin is covered by bacteria and some other stuff, but mostly bacteria, um, the microbiome inside our bodies, along all surfaces and outside our bodies, without which we cannot be hum living human beings. So our bodies are not just human, a community of human cells, it's a community of human cells and the cells of your microbiome. And every time you touch a doorknob or a keyboard or a desktop, you're leaving some of that behind. If you shake someone's hand or kiss them on the cheek or hug them, you're exchanging your microbiome. And we know this is, this is not, these are not trivial exchanges. It has been studied that if you look in a household, the microbiome of the people living in the household and the pets, the dog and the cat, all share one single microbiome that has little areas of condensation on the dog, the cat, and the other family members. So at the cellular level, where are your boundaries? Your boundaries are at least as wide as the places you inhabit and the people you come into physical contact with. So are cells a fundamental thing? When we talk about Western medicine and Western biology, what we mean by that is that the microscope was invented. And when they used the microscope to look at tissues of living things, they saw that there were these empty boxes. And they called them cells because they looked like the cell of a monk or a prisoner devoid of furniture. Later, when we started having special stains that we still use in my daily practice, we could see the furniture was filled in, the nuclei, the Golgi, the endoplasmic reticulum, et cetera, et cetera. But the cell itself was then seen as this thing. And cell doctrine, which is what defines Western medicine and biology, says that all living things are made of cells and all cells come from prior cells. That's true. 
But at the nanoscopic level, cells cease to exist the way your body ceases to exist at the cellular level. It's just molecules afloat in water. And it turns out molecules floating in water fulfill all the same rules that all the other complex systems do. And so where do molecules come from? Atoms, where do they come from? Subatomic particles, where do they come from? It's not an infinite regress down to infinitely smaller things. Physicists agree that there is a smallest level of scale called the Planck length and the Planck time, named after Max Planck, the father of quantum physics. And at that level, there are no things. There's just space-time is an energy-rich field. And thanks to Einstein, e equals mc squared, a field of energy gives rise to little bits of mass periodically. And it does so usually in matter-antimatter pairings, which arise and then hit each other immediately and fall back into energy. So it's this bubbling sort of thing. It's referred to, I love this phrase, the mm -hmm. quantum foam. But sometimes these smallest entities, whatever they are, strings, loops, particles, whatever, escape that annihilation. And then they can interact with each other to become subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, and the whole universe. So my most popular sand video, <laughs> Zaya named everything only yeah. looks like a thing after yeah. something I said, because that's just it. From a complexity point of view, everything does look like a thing from a particular point of view, from a particular scale. Bodies are real, cells are real, <laughs> atoms are real, but from other perspectives, they disappear from view. Higher levels, you can't see them. Lower levels, you find out they're just phenomena arising from smaller things until you get to the quantum foam, and there's no thing anywhere. I've heard this example, and you can just tell me if this is accurate or not, but I've heard that like you can describe a car as complicated because you can take it apart and you can put it back together and it will theoretically still work. But the human body is complex because there's all these, what you, as you spoke about, these layers of emergence that if we take the human body apart, we can't put it back together because it's functioning, its existence is... Yeah, the, yes, and your original question is, don't be afraid of right. the word complexity. The, one of the phrases I use in the book, and it's obviously not mine, but people talk about systems, interacting parts that become a whole, that in which the whole is precisely the sum of its parts. As opposed to that phrase we sometimes say just about things in the world, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A clock and a car are precisely the sum of their parts. You wouldn't even have to put them together you could analyze the structures and go, oh, this is a clock. You can see that in the structure. And there's only one way to put it together. And it will work until it doesn't. Complex systems, there are two kinds of systems that are greater than the sum of their parts. The first, far more well-known than complexity, is chaos theory. And the geometry that defined chaos theory that goes with it are fractals. And many people know that, in part because there was a best-selling book in 2000 called Chaos by James Gleick that made a... Suddenly it was there in the culture, cultural imagination. And those couldn't be defined in a simple way using mathematical formulas or basic engineering principles, the way you could describe a clock. You could only describe them by doing a computer model of them and setting the computer modeling running, the model running. Fractal geometries are not, you can have equations that define a shape, but there's no equation that can define fractals. They can only be generated by an open-ended running of a computer program. So none of this could be explored until we had computers. Eventually, it was discovered actually through the invention of a, essentially a video game called the Game of Life. So in 1970, John Conway invented this game called the Game of Life, which is simply a grid of squares that are considered alive or dead 
and each move of the game into the next moment of time, a square will stay alive or die or become alive, depending on how many of its neighbors are dead or alive. And you can oversimplify it to say, if it has too few neighbors that are alive, it dies because it dies of loneliness. (laughs) But a well-socialized square (laughs) that has lots of neighbors that are alive next to it will continue to be alive into the next one. And a certain number, a square that had been dead, will come to life. And when you run this in an open-ended way on a computer, it often just goes through a variety of shapes moving on the screen and then everything dies. So that's a closed system. But interestingly, you get different kinds that persist. And so you get some that persist because like you can have a three by three grid of solid squares and every step of the game always produces the same three, I mean, the same three by three square. Some will blink. You'll get a horizontal, three squares and a horizontal line will become a vertical line and the next move become a horizontal line and the next move on into infinity. But then there are some that become very complicated and it turned out that these were structures that were best described by chaos theory as fractal. Then the real big leap came when simultaneously a guy named Chris Langton and another guy named David Packard We're studying the game of life. It became a thing to study. Mathematically, it's very interesting. And what they discovered is that as you move through the the space of possible outcomes, there was a zone between perfectly ordered things like the stable or the blinking images and the chaotic patterns. There was a zone where something else altogether happened. You started getting patterns that were open-ended. They actually took on often biological-like shapes. They looked like plants and flowers growing and, and things like this. And, and they realized something else was going on here. And this turned out to be the zone of complexity. And so there's this famous phrase that complexity or life lives at the edge of chaos. It's the edge between, this is a mathematical thing, between chaotic systems and perfect order. They're pulling at each other. And in that zone, there's this little space that opens up where life suddenly happens. In terms of information science, and then we're talking about someone like Alan Turing, for example, who people have heard of, the Turing machine. He's the father of computer science. This is where, this is a profoundly information-rich zone. And one way of thinking about life through a complexity lens, and I touch on it in the book, but I don't go into it in great detail, is that life Mm -hmm. is information. The universe is information, and the greatest information processing, the universal Turing machine, is life itself. So that's where complexity theory started. And people started realizing that you could see this in the real world. And I think when I've been giving this talk for 20 years, I gave it at Sand for, I don't know, Mm -hmm. six years in a row. I've given the talk to scientists. I've given the talk to fifth graders, to yogis and Zen students, you name it. And I always use the same language. I don't have to dumb it down for anybody. And watching the audience is always a pleasure for me because at every moment, every time I say anything, another light bulb goes off somewhere in the room. For everyone, it's a different Mm -hmm. spot in the talk. But complexity is describing the things we have an intuition about. We know what it's like walking down the street and seeing Mm -hmm. birds flocking and seeing trees budding in springtime and how we don't bump into each other on a busy morning getting to our offices. It's intuitive in a way the other great theories of the 20th century, quantum physics and relativity, are completely non-intuitive. So they're really hard. And again, it's funny to me that there have been thousands of books trying to explain quantum physics and relativity for the average person. There have been very few where complexity is concerned, and that's the world we live in.
I love this image that you described when you give your talks of these light bulbs going off and the emergence of an understanding of complexity, because it reminds me of Conway's Game of Life visually. And we'll have a link in the show notes to Mm -hmm. some YouTube videos showing what you were describing earlier, that these really beautiful, intricate, organic patterns can emerge from just a simple pattern of these on and off squares and it's very difficult to describe with words yeah. it's just something to, to see it to see it and it also action. when you were talking about complexity being on the edge of chaos it reminds me so much of art so much of whether mm-hmm. it's visual or music or poetry that it's this dance between the structure of what's expect what's that's the sort of the medium that's being used let's say in music to, mm-hmm. we're going to keep it in this scale and this key and use these rhythms But then at the edge, there's this chaos of the unexpected. And that's where the beauty of Mm -hmm. really profound art happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly it. And you raise a really important point that's actually really beautiful. And to me, is one of the most important points of complex systems. So I talked about these rules of interaction. One of the rules of interaction, whether it's ants or cells or molecules or humans, etc., is that there has to be some limited amount of unpredictability in the system. You don't have that in chaos. If you start with exactly the same beginning, you will get the same outcome. The butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil becoming a tornado in Texas. That's the classic example. People have probably heard of it. If you computer model that and have the butterfly flap its wings exactly the same way each time, you will get exactly the same tornado. Although how that happens (laughs) itself is extraordinary. But in complexity, there has to be this low level of unpredictability. If there's too much, then you get chaos. You get complete disorder. You can't get any self-organization into larger scale structures. You would just have people or ants doing whatever they do. Think about humans in wartime. (laughs) Too much randomness. There's no social structure. I'm thinking about Ukraine, obviously. But if there's too little randomness, then you're a machine and you behave exactly the same way every time. And if the environment changes, there's no way for the system to change in response. But we know if the temperature goes too high, we sweat. If the temperature goes too low, we shiver um, and get goosebumps. So our bodies have freedom to react in different ways. And that freedom comes from this low-level randomness. It's called quenched disorder. And so the example I use in the book and in my talks, you look at a food line of ants and it looks like all the ants are following the food line going back between the sugar cube out here and the colony back and forth and back and forth. But if you go, if you bend down and look closely, there's always some ants that aren't following the food line. And you might think these are evolutionarily disadvantaged ants, because what are they doing? But it turns out if you put your foot down in the middle of the food line, it's these ants that are not following the line that are ones that the most rapidly find the new route around your foot or find the new food source when the old food source runs out. So this low level degree of randomness, these divergent ants in the ant colony, you might say artists and spiritually oriented people in our society are divergent ants in that way. They're exploring new turf that allows creative possibilities. Stuart Kaufman attended Sand (laughs) a number of times too. He and his wife, Kate, Kaufman Peel. We hung out there a lot. And he's one of the founders of complexity theory and the one who really pushed how complexity can explain biological life. And he talks about this quenched disorder creating a shimmering cloud of possibilities for what might happen the next moment. He calls them the adjacent possibles. So in every moment, there's this cloud of adjacent possibles. It's not an infinite variety. That would be complete disorder. There'd be no way to select an adaptive something from that. But you have all these possibilities. And in the next moment, depending on conditions, by chance, to some extent, one of them gets selected. And suddenly, the next moment snaps into existence. But then it has 
this cloud of adjacent possibles around it. So whereas chaos is predictable, complexity theory is always unpredictable. And that we know, again, yeah. that's so intuitive. Life is unpredictable. We know that. <laughs> but that turns out to be, what's the phrase? It's a feature, a bug. not a bug. <laughs> but it feels like a bug sometimes because, and this is one of the most profound parts of it, again, when you think mathematically, that complexity lies between order and chaos at that boundary. You might think that mathematically you could plot any system as a point in that zone, but it's not. It's because of this quench disorder, this low-level unpredictability, it moves around at this zone. And in fact, the border is a fractal. You have no idea, a slight step to the right or the left, you don't know whether you're going to be on the inside of disorder, on the outside, in order, or continuing within the zone of complexity. There's no way to know. But given enough time, because you're wandering around this zone, you will stumble into fractal chaos or rigid order, and the system dies. So the thing that makes us alive and adaptive, this low-level randomness, also necessitates that given enough time, the system will collapse. You'll have a mass extinction event. To have life, there has to be death. And which is, the, the moment you say something like that, there's no way to separate complexity from the boundaries between science and spirituality start mm -hmm. to collapse. Because science suddenly is talking about things that are in the spiritual yeah. domain. No, and that's one of the amazing things about your book is that you create these entryways. So someone coming from a spiritual background or some from a scientific background, there's almost like a roadmap of how complexity can lead you to find the other part of the missing part of the map, the science versus spiritual. And for me, the the section about Kurt Gödel and the incompleteness theorem was that mm. bridge where I found okay this book is about consciousness and you really masterfully <laughs> weave that that model of a mathematical only universe through Gödel's work into a felt sense of what the mystics or spiritual seekers are describing in terms of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It may be too big of a topic to get into, but I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about <laughs> the incompleteness theorem and how that plays into. Yeah, I can. So the context is that we live in this culture that thinks of itself predominantly as materialist. Even people who are spiritual, if you catch them on the fly and off guard, they'll tell you that the surest routes to understanding reality are empirical science and mathematics. It's the air we breathe. It wasn't always this way. But with the phenomenal change in European society with the Industrial Revolution and then World War I, the collapse of all the medieval church hierarchies and this increasing sense that the world is a machine, that was the became the dominant metaphor, a new feeling arose that no, science and mathematics could explain everything. And this was most precisely explored and revealed by a group of philosophers and scientists and sociologists in Vienna called the Vienna Circle. Uh, and ba they basically crystallized it into the world could be understood through empirical science, meaning a scientist studying an object, a subject studying an object. And empirical science meant there has to be a separation between those two in order to do real science. You couldn't get them mixed up with each other. You don't want to influence the experiment that you're observing, right? That on the one hand, or mathematics, that you could build up systems of mathematical proofs that could explain the world. And the expectation was that empirical science could fill in all the data and that mathematics, through a series of extravagantly developed proofs, could model the entire universe and everything in it precisely, completely and consistently. Those were the tests. It had to be complete and it had to be consistent. A system of mathematical proofs that contained everything and never contradicted itself. And that's the world we live in. People have this expectation that math can do that and that science can do that. 
The problem on the empirical science side is quantum physics. At the quantum level, you find that there's no separation of subject and object. In fact, the conscious observation is what determines the nature of the thing you're studying. Max Planck, again, who I mentioned before, famously said you cannot get behind consciousness because consciousness is what decides whether light is going to be a wave or a particle in this particular instant, because the conscious observation determines that in the famous double slit experiments, which I go into in the book, <laughs> I won't bother now. But fam people are familiar with the idea that quantum physics really screwed the nature yeah. of the material universe, and yet we cling to it. But we still have the mathematics. But it turns out we don't, mm -hmm. because Gödel. Gödel was a mathematical Platonist. He believed that the realm of mathematics existed in a Platonic realm, as in Plato, beyond our world, and we discovered mathematical truths in that world, some of which we could prove. The Vienna Circle and materialists in general say, no, no, math is something we invented to count bushels of wheat or stars in the sky. And we invented it and we can completely encompass it. It does what we tell it to do. Right. It's our tool. And he was in the Vienna Circle and just quietly bided his time listening to the arguments when he clearly knew this wasn't the case. And he came up with the incompleteness theorem. In a nutshell, what he did was, remember I said that the goal was, the expectation is that mathematics can completely define everything in existence without contradicting itself. What he showed is that if you have a system of proofs that explains everything, it will inevitably contain a contradiction. And if you have a system that is completely consistent, this is the most important part, then there will be things that are true that cannot be proven from within the system. So how can you know something is true? And how he proved this without using proofs is the brilliance of what he did. He's one of the great minds of history. He's certainly the greatest logician of all time. What he was getting at is that there are things we can intuit are true, but we cannot prove they are true. And so he opened the door mm -hmm. to intuition. The Vienna Circle desperately tried to close the door on what they called metaphysics. The worst insult a Vienna Circle member could hurl at another one in a conversation was, bah, right. that's just <laughs> metaphysics. <laughs> They wanted to squeeze intuition out of science and out of math. Quantum physics says, you can't do it. And now Gödel said, in mathematics, you can't do it. And Gödel himself said, this opening the door back to intuition was going to be important for the study of religion. And so it, the argument I make in the book, I'm not the only person to make this, obviously, is that what Gödel opened is the alternate pathway of direct intuition and direct experience as a way of understanding the true nature of reality. He talked about, he basically described his own meditation practice lying on his couch in a darkened room in a quiet space, wandering the realm of pure mathematics. And he would intuit yeah. things. <laughs> the way we intuit aspects of reality through meditative practice. And what are we experiencing when we are meditating? We are experiencing the nature of our mind. And where does that take us? According to Buddhism and Luriana Kabbalah and Kashmiri Shaivism and Vedanta, to just name a few, the world is mind. The world isn't material. The brain doesn't make minds. The universe arises from mind and eventually creates something as complex, here it applies, as the brain which to me functions like a radio selecting radio waves to give you a Beatles song. My brain selects from the universal consciousness Neil Thies's mind, who thinks he's got something mm -hmm. to say in a book. But it's just my version of what I'm intuiting from the universal mind that we all potentially have access to. And I talk about contemplative practice in the book, obviously, but that's not to exclude the sort of insights you can get from a path of service or a devotional path. Beautiful. And 
Yeah, the, as I said, the, I highly recommend this book. I think anyone in the sand community will love it. But beyond that, it's just it's really it's a coincidental. We were talking about Girdle because I had this book, the Girdle Escher box, on my desk. I was oh. using it to hold up my monitor, <laughs> right. and I got a box. And I took it out. I remember when yeah. that came out. And we were talking about, I mentioned this in the book. I remember when The Game of Life was first published in Scientific American in 1970. I found that copy of Scientific American at the West Hartford Public Library. And I remember reading it and thinking, there's something (laughs) really cool here. And then I went on to the next thing. And then a few years later, Gödel Escherbach came out, won the Pulitzer Prize. I read it, didn't understand it. And now I know that I disagree with oh, you did? the book. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, I oh, think yeah. I've yeah. read it, I don't know, four or five times. Because, yeah, it is very dense and there's a lot of... Incredibly yeah. rich. But his idea is that mind arises from the universe, not that the universe arises from mind. H- Hofstetter, and the author. making an attempt, mm-hmm. yeah, to yeah. Douglas Hofstetter, that through this kind of self-referential... That, Like when I spoke about how I was thinking of my body Mm -hmm. as stem cells, and this became this self-referential loop, Gödel's proof is this self-referential thing, which I go into. I describe it. I think I do a reasonable job of making it simple. It's pretty difficult. But Hofstadter says that in these things that are self-referential, that's the secret to how consciousness bootstraps itself up out of material existence and that's where i separate from i don't think that's the case And I, so we talked about a lot of conceptual things today, a lot of really beautiful models of reality. But as we get close to the end, I wanted to bring it back to the personal because there's a lot of really, I think, personal wisdom, embodied wisdom in your book. And there's one quote that you say, we are not walking through the world. We are interwoven with it. In everything we do, we participate in complexity. And I think this really frames very eloquently the almost the path of non-duality that's experienced in complexity. So I'm, in writing the book or in uh, how you imagine it'll be received, do you feel that there's a sort of societal implication to seeing ourselves as one through complexity? Yeah, sure. Part of me feels a little bit like if people had understood complexity principles 20, 30 years ago, would we have been able to avoid some of the political crazy around Mm -hmm. things like climate change or how to develop an economy that doesn't crash, things like that? If kids were taught complexity in school, they would look at these things and know these aren't political questions. These are mathematical questions. And the answers are really simple according to those four little principles. And so then I felt a little bit like, what am I offering with this book? I know for me personally, it's been transformational in terms of the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, but sometimes some of us need Mm -hmm. a finger pointing. And complexity pointed me at things like emptiness of inherent existence, which were completely abstract things and have become given me access to direct experience. It's easy to say we are all one, but to experience that and in our world, which only trusts science in many ways, um, here's science telling us, no, that's what the world is. We are both separate and lonely individuals in a big, vast, largely empty universe. And at the same time, we are all exquisite expressions of that universe, undivided, completely seamless. But towards the end of the book, at the last minute, I added in a couple of paragraphs because I talk about this kind of view from complexity. But when the world is burning, what does that do for you? And I had an encounter with a young friend of ours who was expressing his anger and depression and fear over the world that's been left to him and that it's hopeless. And as I just described, mass extinction events happen. 
we're in the middle of a mass extinction event. We don't know if it's going to be total, but we certainly are seeing mass extinctions of species around the world, et cetera, et cetera, the climate, blah, blah, blah. And I think what complexity also does for me is helps me find a way in the face of a mass extinction. How do you find resilience to be okay in the middle of that? If one complexity gives you the tools to analyze it and figure out how to change things to avoid the mass extinction, doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it. Sometimes it's too late, but I lived in the shadow of a huge mass extinction, the Holocaust. And I came of age as a young man, gay, in New York City during the AIDS years. And I saw Holocaust survivors who were lived but were wrecked by the experience. And I knew Holocaust survivors who could easily find joy every day. I knew people dying of AIDS who died in deep anger or fear or despair. Um, but I know people who died in extraordinary bliss states. I think complexity points the way to finding joy and, and accessing bliss, even in the midst of the mass extinction event. And I had to put that in the book because that's the moment we're in now. That's the question now. It's happening. Does this help us? I think it does. It helps me in this. Beautiful. So. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful way to close and to generate interest again notes on complexity. Highly recommend it. Thank you, Neil, for being in conversation with us today on Sounds of Sand. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure to come home to yeah. sand in this way nice. <laughs> with this book. Thank you. thank you, Michael. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.